Welcome to the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Vember. In this installment of the podcast, we engage one of our network's newest members, Western Governors University. Western Governors University is a large online non-profit competency-based university based in Salt Lake City, Utah, in the United States. The College of Business has a total enrollment of over 41,000 students, 11,000 of which were enrolled in graduate business programs as of December 2020. The majority of its students are non-traditional and or come from underserved populations. WGU is working to develop innovative products that address access and equitable attainment, creating pathways between talent and opportunity. In this recording, we learn about its competency-based approach to online education and its faculty model, providing students with personalized support as they progress toward completion of a credential. The speakers will discuss the university's strategies to scale while maintaining industry relevance and provide a preview of the skill-focused direction of its program development and redevelopment efforts. Here's my colleague Emma Martins to introduce the panel. Today we are excited to have some guests from one of our brand new members, Western Governors University, here to talk to us about competency-based online education for scale. We are joined today by Michelle Love, the chair of the MBA program at Western Governors University, who has been working in higher education for over 10 years, specifically in marketing and entrepreneurship, as well as arts education. We have Dr. Ning Chung Han, who is a program developer and owner at Western Governors University and has had 10 years of experience in instructional design and technology in higher education. And finally, Michael Whalen, who is a skills architect for Western Governors University. And before joining the team there, he worked for a variety of ed tech organizations, including Ignite Learning and SureScore. Without further ado, I will hand it over to our friends from Western Governors. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you, Emma. Thank you for having us. This is our first opportunity as a new member to speak with the group about um, what we're doing at Western Governors University and, and to start to, to contribute to uh, the conversation and, and the mission of GBSN. And so what we thought we would do in this first webinar is t talk a little bit about our story and where we came from, what we're doing, um, you know, our model, and uh, some of the things that are important to us that, that I think are also um, very well aligned with, with the mission. So as Emma said, my name is Michelle Love. Uh, I am the chair of our MBA program, and I'm joined by two of my close colleagues um, who are going to be um, talking about some important aspects of our model and some of the things that we have going on today. But I'll just start off by um, giving you an introduction to us in case you're not familiar with Western Governors University. So this is a little bit about us. Uh, we are based in Salt Lake City, Utah, USA. We are fully online and nonprofit. We are competency-based across all of our colleges. And we have over 100,000 enrolled students, 100,000 graduates, and 4,200 faculty in uh, all 50 states states. So we were founded in 1997 by a group of governors that was looking to improve workforce readiness in their states. And at the time, um, 
the internet was something that you know was was being explored as a, a possible pathway for higher education and so they wanted to figure out how to leverage it and how to do it effectively and how to do it in a competency-based way that would allow learners to bring their experience and their knowledge gained from a variety of places um, into the higher education space and so, so this right here on our, our, the slide is our promise. We help our students achieve their dreams for a degree and career success by providing a personal, flexible, and affordable education based on real world competencies. And, and that statement at the top, believing that talent is universal even when opportunity isn't, um, it, it's a really important concept that underpins everything that we do and, and the culture of, of WGU. Everything we do um, is very much focused on student success, student outcomes, uh, what makes the most sense for our learner population, and how can we expand access to have a positive impact on an even broader audience. Um, those are the things that, that we're thinking about. Those are the, the problems that we're trying to solve and, and the questions we're trying to answer every day. So, for a little bit about um, you know, our accreditors, some awards we've received, some uh, feedback from students. Um, we are currently accredited by the Northwest Commission on Colleges and Universities. Uh, we also are ACBSP accredited in our business college. We've won several awards uh, over the years for innovation in online education and distance learning, competency-based education. Um, and you can see some outcomes information in terms of graduate um, satisfaction and also an impact to graduate salary at the, the top of the screen. So compared to um, you know, national averages, 97% uh, of WGU graduates reported they'd recommend us to others. 85% um, were satisfied with the overall experience, so 10% higher than the, the national average. And then you can see some pretty impressive uh, average salary increases within two years of graduation and four years of graduation as well. Um, so, you know, we're pretty proud of, of the impact that we have and, and our outcomes, although we're always striving to improve and, and to achieve more. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about, you know, where, where that is right now and, and where it's going for us, what we're focusing our attention on uh, a little bit later on in the presentation. To give you an idea though of, of you know, the amount of time students spend in our programs, our tuition, um, so you can see the, the value um, that our students are, are receiving. Here you can see these are just a comparison of two of our business programs, our large largest ones. Um, our BS in business management, 68% of graduates finish within 36 months. Uh, a lot of them do transfer credit in and, and come to us to complete their degree, but not necessarily all of them. And then our tuition is charged per six month term. So it's a flat rate tuition rate. And when students enter the program, they're enrolled in this six month term with what we call a, a standard path. So it's, it's the, the initial um, three to four courses in their program. And they're able to complete those courses during that six month term by demonstrating competency. Um, and as soon as they've demonstrated competency through a variety of types of assessments, they are able to then move on to the next course. So, you know, being competency-based, we're, we're focused on assessment and we're focused on demonstrating competency in those in-demand, uh, industry-aligned areas. 
as opposed to specific seat time. So if you can imagine a student can come in, enter that six month term, pay their flat rate tuition. And if they're someone who has 10 years of industry experience, um, they just never finished their degree. And so they're very familiar with the content uh, within each of those initial courses that, that are in their term, they can complete those courses and then they can actually accelerate additional courses, the, the subsequent courses into that same term to work on those as well. And, and their tuition doesn't change. So, so this is where, you know, for students, especially students, and, and this was, you know, how we were founded, specifically focusing on that particular population of students who has experience, they just don't have the credential, they may have gained the experience through a variety of, of educational settings, but also um, workplace settings. And so they're able to focus on demonstrating competency in those areas where they, they already have that knowledge and experience and, and moving quickly through those courses while they can then spend more time on the courses in areas that, um, you know, are, are less familiar to them, where maybe they don't have as much experience or, or exposure. Now, to look at the College of Business specifically, um, because one of the things that, that you know, is important to us with our mission and our promise is scale. And so, you know, we're constantly, like I said, looking at how do we reach more people? How do we um, improve more lives by helping students achieve their, their higher education goals? Um, you know, so we were founded in 1997. It's, it's 2021. And uh, these numbers were as of the end of um, January. So 44,000 students uh, in the College of Business, 11,000 are graduate students, um, and we have 11 different programs, um, five at the graduate level, so um, the, a couple of different MBA programs, uh, a master's in accounting, and an MSML program. And then we have six different undergraduate programs uh, in business currently. And uh, if you saw Dan's post yesterday on LinkedIn, one of the things he called out um, is that uh, a large population of our students are uh, from underrepresented um, backgrounds uh, and, and underserved populations in traditional higher ed. And just to give you an example of, of you know, what that looks like in, in the College of Business, um, in the first half of uh, fiscal year 21, 64% of our students were female, 40% were students of color, 34% uh, were low income, and 40% were first generation college students. So very large populations um, that, you know, I, and also I didn't mention our, our average age, it's, it's shifted a little bit and it varies by program, um, but it's, it's in the 37 to 43 years old um, range. So it's, it's a non-traditional population that we're serving and we're always looking to, to figure out how we can expand that even further and how we can um, close a, attainment gaps uh, as well. So these are important pieces of, of the conversation. So I mentioned this a little bit, um, our, our competency-based model uh, involves six month terms with flat rate tuition. And that means we're assessment driven, not time driven. So we basically have two major buckets of, of types of assessments. We call them performance assessments and objective assessments. Uh, performance assessments are our, you know, um, papers, presentations, reports, business plans, things like that. And objective assessments are more traditional exams. 
Um, so we have assessments that, and, and a, an assessment department, which Ning Chan will be talking about in a minute here, that focuses on making sure the assessments are aligned to the competencies, and the competencies are underlined by a specific set of skills, which Michael's going to be talking about in more detail as well. Um, and so as students move through their coursework, they'll demonstrate competency on each assessment uh, aligned and, and that's how they're able to move on into the next course. One of the really unique things about our model, if, if you know, everything I've said so far isn't, isn't kind of unique already, is we um, are very, very individualized in our approach to student support. We have what we call a disaggregated faculty model. So uh, if you see, you know, the student in the center here, that that first um, closest ring to the student, uh, many of those roles are various types of specialized faculty roles. So we have uh, student mentors or program mentors, as they're also referred to, who are um, faculty members with advanced degrees in business who are assigned to work with students throughout the entire tenure of their program. So it's, it's I mean, we call them mentors because that's truly what they're doing. They're, they're instructing and they're guiding, um, but they're also mentoring along the way and they're alongside that student um, in, until they, they reach graduation. We have uh, course mentors who are, are our course faculty, um, your um, more traditional uh, type of faculty role, instructing um, role, where you know they're they're going to have the advanced degrees in specific disciplines by course, and as students move through the program, they're the ones who are supporting the students um, by discipline uh, as they work to demonstrate competency. And then we have assessment and evaluation faculty who are developing assessments and um, doing the grading, doing the actual evaluation of those um, completed assessments. And then we have our program development faculty who are responsible for developing our curriculum, which is a centrally managed curriculum. Um, as students move into their courses, they're actually in um, sort of a, um, it, it's not a, a canvas, you know, type classroom situation, um, they're actually working in the, the same interface with the same content um, in a master course that uh, was designed by our program development team um, and our uh, various faculty members as, as a part of that group. So from there, I'm going to hand it over to Ning Chan, who is going to talk in a little bit more detail about, you know, what exactly that looks like and how we use um, our program development um, approach um, to scale. Thank you, Michelle. Yes, um, at WGU, program development is uh, more of a centralized department that develops programs and courses for all colleges at WGU. But uh, our programs and uh, all the other offerings are not really developed in a silo, I want to say that. Rather, it is uh, definitely a collaborative work between the program development and other functional areas. Like for example, in my role as a program development owner for the MBA program and a few other graduate programs um, in the business college, I manage the day-to-day -day design development and maintenance of our graduate programs. But at the same time, I serve as a liaison that bridges the program development team with our academic and operational partners. Together, we make sure that the products we make uh, provide the optimal learning experiences for our students. 
the goal of the program development at WGU is to, it's pretty simple, but it's pretty big, is to create a high quality learning experiences and programs uh, to enable our students to attain the uh, skills and competencies they need to achieve their education and career goals. So in order to achieve this grand goal, um, there are a lot of uh, CBE uh, best practices and standards that development program development has to follow. Um, no, whenever we are ready to uh, create a product, no matter if it is a degree, a degree program, a course, a micro-credential, or even a badge, we start the development with the why and identifying the learning outcomes. In our case, they are the, these are the competencies. We ask ourselves a lot of questions like, why do we need to develop this product? What value does it bring to our students? And what competencies we want our students to be able to achieve at completion? Once we identify the competencies, we then determine the acceptable evidence through what tasks uh, should students demonstrate their competence? By what criteria should students' performance be evaluated? Once we determine the assessment strategy, we then move into the last step, which is to develop the instructions and the learning activities um, to support students to achieve their learning outcomes. Since the whole development process starts with the end goal in our, in our mind, we call this process the backward design process. Um, this process will make sure that everything we develop in our product is truly aligned to the competencies. A strong alignment between the competencies, the assessment, and the learning activities is the key element of the quality competency-based curriculum. Uh, this is an example of the course design work that we recently, recently did in a course called Personal Leadership and Development. Um, the course design, the purpose of the course design work is, is to establish the alignment and framework for the course before we even get into the content development. Um, in this case, we first identify the competencies that are mapped to uh, the skill sets that are demanded in the labor market. Um, Michael actually in a minute will explain how these skills are identified and inform our competency writing. And then we determine the summative assessment type. In this case, we decided that we need to uh, you have a performance assessment to help measure the student's demonstration of this competency. And then to identify the evidence of students' skills development, we de develop evidence statements uh, for each competency and then the learning objectives for each evidence statement. After we establish the alignment between the competency, the evidence statement, and the learning objectives, then we move into um, curating the learning resources to help support students to achieve the learning objective. We also create a formative assessment. This is a very important self-assessment tool that we design in our curriculum. Um, so formative assessment provides immediate feedback to our students 
uh, giving our students the evidence of their current progress to help them manage and adjust their own learning. So when there is a performance assessment um, in our curriculum, we also need to make sure that we create high quality rubric. In competency-based learning, rubric is far more than just an evaluation tool. It articulates the competencies and clarifies with students about what they are learning, why they are learning. Our course instructors also use the rubric to calibrate their understanding of the quality performance so they can better support our students. Um, so this is an example of the rubric that we created um, for the performance assessment for the course I just mentioned. Um, the rubric, or we, well, the rubric has a three-scale rubric, with the last uh, scale being the competence level. The expectation of the competence level is explicitly described in the rubric, and students cannot just get partial credit for just approaching the competence. They have to uh, reach the competence level for in all tasks in order to pass the assessment. And in WGU's model, in the competency-based model, um, we actually um, give students multiple attempts, opportunities to, um, to try the, the assessment until they pass the assessment. And each time they try, they make an attempt, they receive constructive feedback from our evaluation faculty um, that provides help to help our students uh, make the progress, um, improve their performance until they can reach the, they can, they can achieve the learning outcomes. So, so once we finish complete a product and deliver that product to our students and faculty, uh, the program development's work doesn't really stop there. In order to maintain the quality and relevancy of our products, we have implemented a continuous quality improvement process. This is a data-driven decision-making process of identifying problems, analyzing root causes, implement the solutions, tracking the outcomes, and revising solutions. It is, as you can see in this uh, slide, on this slide, it is a iterative process to make sure that our products remain high quality and relevant. And this is uh, just an example of the root cause analysis we conducted in one of our courses, C200, Managing Organizations and Leading People. This is the first course students take when they start our program, uh, graduate programs. Um, we identified an, a, a problem with the low, this course has had a low course completion rate. And after we collected data, we identified four symptoms that could contribute to the low course completion rate. The course had very low assessment pass rate and also high drop rate. This course also had very high non-attempt rate, which means many students engaged in the course, but in the end, they never attempted the assessment. We also gathered feedback from our students and faculty that showed dissatisfaction with this course. So um, after we collected all this data, we started to ask ourselves a lot of whys. Why, uh, this is, why this happened? What really caused each symptom? 
And finally, we identified the root causes. So after a full, the full analysis was completed, we were able to identify five root causes that caused the low completion rate. And we came up with a plan of action to address each root cause. So after the solutions were implemented, we started to monitor the students' outcomes and look for more opportunities for quality improvement for this course. So all this work is done by following the ADDIE model, uh, which is probably the most well-known processed model uh, for the learning design professionals. But in order to keep up with the ever-changing landscape of higher education and workforce needs, we broke down this process into 10 phases. This 10-phase this process identifies the key milestones and also clarifies the, rule, the, the, the roles and also the task expectations in each phase. And uh, this also uh, process also helps, you know, provide, give us more flexibility to, uh, to allow us to design, develop, and deliver our offerings more effectively and efficiently. Um, as what I said earlier, the whole program development process definitely is a, a key teamwork. It's a collabor collaborative effort. A lot of different stakeholders have involved in this process. I will just highlight some of the key team players in this process. You know, during the uh, analysis phase, our research analyst will identify the workforce needs for us. And then the program chair will help convert the needs of the workforce and our students into academic vision for, the, for an offering. The skills architect will help identify the skills demanded in the labor market and also strategically map these skills into our offerings, which will help inform the competencies for, uh, for, for, for each offering. Um, during the design and development process, our own faculty serve as the primary subject matter experts working very closely with our instructional designers and assessment developers to transform the academic vision into the final product. Accessibility team will make sure that our product is fully accessible to our students. Quality assurance team is probably our last gatekeeper to ensure the quality before we deliver our product to our students and faculty. And, uh, you know, and of course, project manager will keep us on track and, uh, and deliver on time. So there's an old saying, uh, it takes a village to raise a child at WGU. It definitely takes a village to develop uh, and deliver a high quality product that can reach more students and help every one of them to be successful. So this is just a high level overview of what the program development does at WGU. Now I'm going to uh, pass the baton to Michael. Thanks. Yes. Hi, my name is Michael Whalen, and I'm the Western Governors University Skills Architect, primarily assigned to the College of Business. I'd like to talk about skills architecture goals and vision, as well as process and products. So in skills architecture, we research, document, and track market demanded skills to guide educational products so we can accurately position and promote competent learners. We think of skills as the educational currency between industry and academics. At WGU, one of our leadership principles is student obsession. 
everything we do and every decision we make starts with our students. And one of our metrics for success is an employed WGU learner. To that end, we have to ask, what do students and employers need? Learners need opportunities to demonstrate and receive credit for their skills, no matter where they are learned. Uh, for example, if someone learned logistics management skills while serving in the military, then she should be able to prove that competency and receive credit for it, rather than only receiving credit after relearning what she already knows, just in a formal academic setting. By giving credit where it's due through prior work experience and skills developed outside of a formal educational setting, again, we're helping widen that access to opportunity. Learners also need to know what career opportunities or pathways their skill set can open for them. In this sense, the encompassing potential of skills data makes job opportunities more transparent, increasing equitable access. Job seekers want educational options that match their goals and reflect job trends to stay ahead of the obsolescence curve. And they want to be able to tell a compelling narrative around the skills they've earned in a lifetime of working and learning. On the other side of that coin, employers want options to skill and reskill their employees in response to changing marketplace demands. And higher education is a system that better serves employers and learners by easing interoperability and translation between credentials. That's where our skills architecture comes into play at the forefront of innovation for open skills access, adoption, and use. With these challenges in mind, WG is leading several innovations with diverse partners. Working with the T3 Innovation Network, we're developing pilots with IBM, Walmart, Salesforce, Workday, and the Lilly Foundation with Goodwill to demonstrate the functionality of an interoperable learner record, a robust document of a learner's achievements operating across platforms. Our achievement architecture is a set of custom applications meant to interface with open standards and open tools to enable skills-based education and hiring workflows. And led by WGU, the Open Skill Stack Alliance is an alliance of innovators from education, industry, and the armed forces who have significant investment and capability to dramatically accelerate the creation and use of standards and technologies to advance the availability and use of open machine actionable skills data for the talent marketplace. And finally, the Open Skills Management Toolset is a skills library created with Concentric Sky to enable skills authoring and management for sharing at scale. Our use of strategic partners and commitment to open standards, open tools, and open skills speaks to our eager ability to scale. So that speaks to our overall vision and goals. When a WGU product is proposed, whether it's a program, course, microservigation, what have you, a list of aspirational careers is shared by the educational program designer with the skills architect, who then researches the skills demanded by those careers from an internal library of over 11,000 discrete skill statements, all tagged to SOC codes. Um, we provide a ranked list of the most in-demand technical and power skills, occupational demand data, curated from our labor market data research partner, MC. Again, going back to our student obsession leadership principle, we're researching what skills job descriptions are demanding applicants have and we want our students to be competent with those skills to help them gain employment. So as an example, while critical thinking may come up as a highly sought skill, we then have to show what that skill of critical thinking looks like when it's performed in the workplace. These verb-driven skill statements are an additional level of granularity 
part of the larger machine readable metadata package of the rich skill descriptors. Our internal library is a collection of all the skills across all the colleges with necessary and obvious overlap. So for example, there may be critical thinking skills more appropriate for an MBA than a nurse and vice versa. The tagged differences between them is part of that rich skill descriptor. Working with external subject matter experts, uh, partners in our respective fields to contribute to the increasingly enormous skills library, again, speaks to building at scale. Um, Ning Chung mentioned the relationship between the WGU competencies and skills, the rich skill descriptors, the RSDs, selected at an early stage and designed by the educational program designer are used to inform competency authoring. Uh, RSDs are grouped together in meaningful ways informed by common themes, labor market data, standards within the field, and more as part of design. So here's an example <clears throat> of selected multiple RSDs coalescing into one competency. So discrete skill statements for communications and change management were selected by the educational program designer in the competency the learner develops communication and change management plans that improve outcomes in the changing healthcare system was composed using those selected RSDs. Importantly, those selected skills need to be assessed for the learner to be considered competent. Uh, not that WG teaches those skills, but that the learner proves that they have those skills. <clears throat> um, an outcome of both the overarching skills architectural goals division and the nose to the grindstone academic work is our learners can showcase competency badges that they've earned rather than waiting for a final diploma. And those badges can then be shared to a variety of platforms. <clears throat> um, so at this time, we can take questions. Yes, thank you all so much. That was, I didn't know that much about Western Governors. I feel like I know so much more now. So I even find myself having questions, but let's let's look at some of the questions from our, from our audience. So one core question they have is um, whether the courses are synchronous, asynchronous, both, um, what, what is the, what is the consensus on that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, um, our, our courses are, are asynchronous. However, our student support is customized. So what the experience looks like is a student, you know, starts the course and it's, it's asynchronous online. They're, they're interfacing with, you know, a classroom accessing learning resources and, you know, it, it might be a combination of videos, podcasts, uh, articles, textbooks, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, but as I mentioned, when I was talking about our faculty model, that student's also going to have um, a, a mentoring faculty member assigned to them for throughout the program. Plus, they're going to have a variety of other faculty contacts that they can work with depending on, you know, their needs. And so, um, you know, the, the course faculty, say your credentialed um, economics um, faculty member, if, if that's the course they're in, they may host um, several webinars per week that the student has the option of attending. Um, they may make one-on-one -on -one appointments for uh, a video call um, to, to learn uh, more about a specific topic or, you know, get questions answered. Um, they may, um, do some, um, email or chat correspondence, um, to, to learn and, and to have questions answered and, and to receive support. So, you know, it's, it's asynchronous, but there are synchronous customizable components depending on each individual student's need. 
That's that's awesome. And I guess a follow up question that this individual asked, but also I'm curious now is what LMS, what learning management system does WGU have to facilitate this kind of personalization? <laughs> that's another good question. Um, I don't know, Ning Chun, do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, that is a good question. But uh, a simple answer is we have our own homegrown uh, learning management system. We don't use, you know, Blackboard, Canvas, any of that. We have our own homegrown uh, learning management system that supports all of this. Um, that's, yes, that's, that's the answer. <laughs> actually, well, I guess I can say, say a little bit more. Right now, actually, we are building a, a more advanced version of, of our uh, platform now that can support even more different varieties, big varieties of different offerings. Um, so this is definitely uh, something that we, uh, it's something that we, we own so we can keep continue, we can keep improving uh, to meet the needs that we have. Wonderful. So this question is more derived back towards what kind of how you guys do your review of your courses and whether courses are reviewed continually or how often are they reviewed? Is there a process for that kind of review process you talked about? Yeah, well, um, I guess there's several. <laughs> so, um, you know, just kind of as a whole, I mean, it, we want to make sure we're looking at, at our programs and our courses at least, what, once a year of 18 months, that type of thing, just in a holistic sense. Um, but we have the, the continuous quality improvement process Ning Chun mentioned. Um, you know, if, if we notice outcomes are changing um, at a certain point or we notice um, that we're starting to receive feedback from students indicating, uh, I don't know, a need, that type of thing, that will trigger a review of individual courses or sets of courses or, or the full program. Um, so there's, there's kind of some overlapping processes there. We are truly continuously evaluating student performance um, and the performance of individual courses and programs. Um, I mean, we're looking at monthly data. And, and one of the things that I didn't mention um, is that um, we, we have students starting uh, the first of every month. So um, yeah, so and, and then of course they are finishing courses and graduating, um, not necessarily at the end of those six month terms, but at the point that they demonstrate competency in all their courses. So we have a constant refresh of data <laughs> that we're looking at, that we're working with, um, which, is, which is different. I mean, when I've worked at institutions that are on a more traditional academic calendar, you know, there's, you're getting a ton of term and data at the end of a semester, that type of thing. For us, it's, it's ongoing. That's, that's super interesting. So someone brings up a, an interesting question that you kind of have hinted at, but how do you then handle onboarding new students every month at the on the first day of the month? Is there a process for that? Obviously, I assume it's, it's unique to each student, but is there a process? Yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So that community of care that I was describing on the, the one uh, graphic, really, really um, key. You know, they start off working with our enrollment team and then before they even um, start, they're introduced to that um, program mentor, that mentoring faculty member who's gonna be by their side throughout their program. Um, and so that relationship is really key because that person serves as their primary 
point of contact really uh, the entire time. And so they spend a ton of time onboarding them, orienting them with um, the classroom, with our model, with all of the different support services. Because in addition to all these faculty, we also have you know your writing center and math center and library and all of those other support services too. Um, and so they're they're a liaison that's helping with all that. And on top of that, we do have um, you know an asynchronous orientation course that students complete as well. So there's there's a bunch that we're doing. And, and I mean, it is it's it's important, right, because our model is different. And so, you know, regardless of your background and, and you know, your experience level, um, there's a good chance that if you're starting school with us, you haven't quite experienced education this way. So so that onboarding piece is is really important and it's really intentional. Yeah, absolutely. So someone has asked whether there are any plans to work towards including any synchronous delivery in any of your courses. Is that something you guys consider or is that not something that's on the plate? Yeah, well, I mean, so, uh, you know, we, we do webinars and live events and different things like that. In some of our colleges, we do various types of um, field experience and, you know, practicums and things like that. Um, we are um, piloting in some spaces, some experiential learning um, options for students right now. I mean, I would love to see us incorporate more of that. I personally am very excited about that. Um, but it does, uh, it does kind of change the the timeline for students. And so it's, it's one of those things that we're kind of trying to figure out how that fits into our model. It's going very well so far, students are loving it, but they go from this place of, you know, we're, we're not time bound, right? So they adjust to that and then they move into this space that's much more synchronous. And, you know, so we're, we're still working out those details. Well, and I think this time is very unique and I think everyone's working through those. I think everything is changing very rapidly. So that's, that's good to hear. Have you guys noticed any changes in teaching strategies, methods, because you are so asynchronous during the pandemic or versus pre-pandemic, or has it been largely the same for your learners? Um, the student experience and, and our faculty experience and all that has, has been largely the same in, you know, in, in concept, in process. Um, I will say, and, and I don't think we're unique in this space, um, but, you know, having that mentoring relationship, that close relationship with students, I, I think helps being in a place that's, that's even more important in our students' lives. I mean, some of the conversations they're having, um, because it's not, you know, you're not this one person I see periodically for 16 weeks, you're this person that I've been with for three years, you know, so, so they're, they're providing, I think, some some support um, beyond, I think, the the, okay. the typical faculty role because of that. That's that's awesome. So taking a little bit of a turn, um, you guys spoke a lot about the soft skills, evaluating the soft skills that students might need in the workplace. Can you tell us more about how you assess key power soft skills, which is teamwork, those kinds of skills you talked about? Yeah, Ning Chun or Michael, do one do one of you guys want to talk about that? I feel like I've been answering all the questions so far. Well, you are doing a good job, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> another, another voice, another voice. <laughs> we do, we do have. Uh, that's why, actually, when I when I was talking about the program development, when I mentioned, you know, we want to make sure that we uh, we 
even though the skills uh, demanded in labor market will inform the competency uh, offering, it doesn't mean that our competencies will only focus on the skills demanded in the labor work, like specific, you know, in specific discipline. But we want to make sure that when we drafted a competency, when we write a competency, we include um, just like those soft skills as well. So that's why I said the, the competencies, again, is our anchor, right? We want to make sure that the competencies will include the skills demanded in the labor market, but at the same time, include the soft skills and knowledge, you know, that our students need, the students, the needs that our, that, that our students need as well. So, so that, that's, that's what competency actually is really, really is about. So uh, very intentionally, we will include the soft skill, um, those soft skills in, in our competencies. So with that, with that being said, that's, that means, you know, we, you, you will see quite often in our assessment, you know, we will require students to do a lot of like demonstration and presentation. So we will evaluate their, you know, communication skills. We will also have, uh, have, have like team-based work. Some, some, uh, some of the assessment will include that. So we can, we can evaluate the students' collaborative skills, the communication skills, we even include like emotional intelligence uh, into mm -hmm. our into our assessment. Um, um, so so all these things that we, we do we do include all that in our curriculum. But again, the key is that we make sure that all this is included in our competencies. So we will make sure that we will you know build our cu curriculum to support that and also build our assessment to be able to really assess if our students have you know, achieved those skills. Right, and I think there's another question that kind of links directly to this is about asking, can you guys elaborate on how you link these skills that you're talking about to these course learning objectives? How, how does that process happen? Um, yeah, I, I can speak to that and Ming Chang also. Um, so you can think of a, an, a hierarchy where maybe at the top is the competency and beneath that are the skills that build into the, the competency. And then beneath that, there's uh, our evidence statements or learning objectives. Um, and each of those will support those skills and then in turn support the competencies. And those are all documented so that the course designers uh, write those up front and then they're evident to the developers the entire time. So there's a clear uh, path. That's so interesting. Um, do you guys have many international students? Do you guys have hopes to connect with international schools? What does that look like for, for you all? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, um, yeah, currently we, we do not have a, a, a significant international presence. Um, but it's something that we're always looking at. We're always, you know, thinking about like, okay, well, what's, what's the, the right direction that we need to be heading in, in that space. So it's, it's on our minds, um, you know, and, um, we have, uh, talked about in certain areas looking at, you know, starting with Canadian students and, you know, that, you know, as an initial space. Um, but, but right now it's, it's not, it's not a large part of our our population, but I mean, I could see it being, um, you know, a direction that we go in the future. Um, but it just kind of depends on, 
you know, a, a lot of different priorities. I think, um, you know, one of the things that is important to us, as I talked about with our promise, is we want to expand access to higher education, right? And we believe that higher education is, you know, the catalyst for positive change in, in lives, right? And that's not just here in the United States. And so that's part of why we, we are here, you know, with GBSN is we're, we're trying to figure out, you know, how, how can we how can we continue um, to, you know, in, increase our, our positive impact? So we're certainly, you know, and I'm certainly open to conversations with with folks from other places to, to figure out what that could look like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we think you're in the right place for that. So <laughs> that's exciting for us to hear. Um, can you, we talked about this a little bit, but can you talk about how Western Governors is obviously a very different model from a traditional two-year or four-year university. How do you guys, um, not necessarily compete, but how do you compare yourselves? How do you work in that ecosystem as opposed to your your colleagues that are from four-year and two-year universities? Um, sure. So, I mean, we do partner with um, various institutions. So, you know, your community colleges, we have some articulation agreements and, and different types of relationships there, um, depending on the, the program and, and the college and whatnot. We have, um, so, so we're based in Salt Lake City, Utah, but we have um, chancellors or, or, you know, regional uh, affiliates across the country who are working with the their local states and um, making sure that we're aligned with with those needs and part of that um, includes creating pathways between uh, our institution and other institutions so that's something that um, you know we have a lot of, of relationships established already but we're always looking for for more um, you know where it makes sense where we can where we can make a positive impact so one of our participants has a very interesting question. I'm curious to see what, what your thoughts on it are about unbundling your degrees so that learners can do more micro credentials in different areas. As you mentioned, you have students that have maybe been in the workforce for over a decade, just don't have the necessarily the degree or the what certificate. How do you, what do you, what are your thoughts about that? Well, um, I guess I can start and then maybe Michael and Ning Chun, but um, that's an important one. And, and we're spending a lot of time on it right now. So, you know, we, um, we, we don't think that the degree is necessarily, you know, the, the end all be all. And we're, we're trying to figure out ways through certificates and micro credentials that we can repackage um, content into basically groups of skills and competencies that will add value, you know, to, to a person's life. And so, you know, the, the foundation of that is, is a lot of what Michael talked about with um, skills stacking and, and the open skills network and the work being done in that space. I don't know, Michael, if you want to add to that. Sure. I, I think part of our model is what makes it so unique is that there's a great deal of modularity in, in what we do. So we're able to further break down what is a program or what is a course into really these kind of discrete uh, competencies. And uh, we're looking at ways to rearrange those competencies to offer different products. Um, and so we're doing a lot of exercises now to see how we can kind of re-deliver what we already do in, in different packages for sort of more specific purposes. If someone doesn't want to a full degree, but does want a, a certification very rapidly, um, we're looking at ways that we can kind of repurpose and re-deliver what we already have. So 
that's that's very interesting because I think a lot of schools right now are trying to pivot. They're trying to figure out how to do my, that micro credentialing. As a lot of there's a lot of people searching for that that area right now. Um, so I guess just one last question to close out. I think it's kind of the looming question that everyone wants to know. Everyone wants to compare notes. How have you been supporting your students um, through COVID nineteen? Have you seen an increased demand for any kinds of support? Um, what has succeeded? What has been points of issue for you? How has COVID-19 affected your students and your staff? Yeah, um, well, I mean, you know, just uh, while we were already online and largely asynchronous, and so, you know, that part of our, our business hasn't changed, um, you know, the, there's there's obviously the human impact piece, right, that, that we're all dealing with. I mean, we have an MBA in healthcare management, and so, um, even just hearing those stories and working with the students who are on the front line, the nurses who, you know, um, are, are having to put things on hold because of the, the hours they're working and the things that they're doing and the, the psychological toll that it's taking. Um, you know, so we're not, we're, our model is obviously not immune to that, right? And, you know, so I, I think, like I said, I, one of the strengths has been that uh, we have that mentoring role that person who's working with a student one-on-one -on -one and understands their situation and understands their needs. Um, we're doing what we can for those students to um, try to, to, you know, help them continue to be successful, whatever that looks like for them based on their situation. Um, you know, so we have continued to try to be as student centric and personalized as possible. And, and, you know, what we're doing in terms of, I don't know if we have to move around schedules or grant incompletes and, you know, just all of those types of accommodations, um, you know, so we're doing all those things. Um, I will say that uh, we have seen uh, in some areas in, an increase in the pace of, of students completing courses and, and programs. Um, I think part of that, you know, is more people being at home and, um, you know, people, if they're unemployed, them taking the time to focus on their education and with our model, they're able to do that. They're not bound to time. So, you know, for some students, they've taken it as an opportunity for uh, a career change, um, that type of thing. So that's been um, something we've experienced as well. Um, you know, and then we're, we're trying to do what we can. Um, you know, we have faculty who have done various types of webinars and trainings to help parents who are working remotely with, you know, how do you support um, online learning? Because obviously we have a lot of experience in that space, right? So we've done uh, quite a bit in that sense, just to kind of try to help the community at large um, with things that are more familiar to us than, than you know, maybe to folks in K-12 or other institutions. So those are, those are some things. I don't know, Ning-Chan, Michael, can you think of anything else in particular to call out in that? I, I feel, you know, um, you know, since I, you know, I, since I mentioned data driven, you know, a lot of our work is, 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 is really data driven. So we monitor, you know, students course completion rates, everything on the, on a weekly basis, almost, you know, if it is not monthly basis. So, but uh, we definitely see uh, the impact on, on some of this data on the metrics. Um, but at the same time, I just wanted to say that we understand that, you know, this is, this is a difficulty, difficult time for our students, but we never try to never even, we would never try to lower our standards. So that's what something that I really want to, I want to kind of, you know, stress here. We don't, 
lower our standards, our expectations on our students. But we do understand that this is a difficult time. So, uh, so what we do is like what Michelle said, we provide additional support to our students. And uh, you know, the good thing about the CBE model is, yes, students can attempt, they can try as many times as they can, you know, in, 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 you know to, to, to really to, to achieve the competency. So we give them opportunities. We, we may have to, we extend the, the, extent, the, the deadline a little bit for them, you know, understanding that they may not, that they, they may not be able to, to do, it, do it on time. We give them more attempts to, uh, to attempt but we make that very clear with our students that, you know, this is a expectation we have for you and we will do everything to support you to meet the expectation. Michael, did you have anything you wanted to add? I thought you started to speak. Yeah, you know, uh, pretty early on in the pandemic, the university and the employees in the university uh, understanding that people were economically hit. Uh, we started a, a scholarship just for uh, our students who oh, that's right. were, were mm -hmm. suffering to help them continue on. I want to thank you, the three of you, so much for joining us today for talking about this because it's really important. I think a lot of people are trying to pivot very quickly and we all can learn, stand to learn as much as we can. With thanks to Emma and our panel from Western Governors University to attend our cross-border webinars and catch up with more of the work we do here at the Global Business School Network, please visit gbsn.org. If you've enjoyed your listening experience, please remember to rate, click and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, take care.